This episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 5th of December 2023 at home in Wicklow. And in it, I have further thoughts on the conflict in the Middle East. Um, Some of those thoughts are a direct response to a good friend and listener who reached out to me with uh, a bit of concern about some of my, um, my previous reactions to the conflict. That was a nice stepping off point for me just to, to think a bit deeper about it. So I share that. Uh, I also discuss uh, the death of Shane McGowan and uh, Henry Kissinger um, and share thoughts on their respective lives and their their impact in you know in their their respective areas and i conclude today's episode with a couple of movie reviews um a couple of uh yeah a couple of nice nasty but uh, in one case anyway very funny movies i i just took in, in the last couple of weeks so um yeah i hope you have time to listen to that That's it. Um, You will notice in the background some chicken noises and maybe a dog noise um, because I recorded the episode in a different room. So slightly different sound quality and some um, some environmental interruptions. So I hope that doesn't detract from your enjoyment of the episode. Okay, I'll see you around the corner. Cheers. Not going to change my mind. Leaving the dream behind. Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. You're very welcome. I hope this finds you well and I'd like to thank you first and foremost for choosing this podcast and this episode of this podcast. I'm very happy to have your company, so to speak, because obviously when I'm recording there ain't nobody here but me and the chickens and the cats and the dog. And in fact, <laughs> today I'm not recording in my normal space I've ceded occupation of the green room at home to my wife who's not usually here on the days I record um, so she's in that room doing her whatever she does the mysterious ways of women now I don't mean that she has a, a training going on on zoom so I'm in a different room, the acoustic, um, the audio qualities, properties of this episode may sound a little bit different to usual, but immediately to my left, I have a geriatric cat face down on a cushion on the chair beside me. Um, That would be Marlon, 21 years old. Uh, Across the room from me, curled up in a ball, is Ruby, the tabby, I always refer to her as a kitten, but you know she's over two years old now so she's not really a kitten anymore in fact she has grown she's really looking like a a proper grown-up cat and then to my right on the other sofa couch settee is pepper the collie also curled up in a ball asleep um she had a visit to the vet this morning so she's pretty pooped um so there you go and the chickens oh those bloody chickens i can see them from where i sit they are currently eating bird seed that i left out for the birds that come into the garden um chickens 
they're, they're, they're not really endearing themselves to me. This is the second uh, squad of chickens that we've had. Um, there was a, a change of a change of regime over the summer. Edwina the rooster was dispatched to the chicken coop in the sky. Um, we have kept Charlotte and Bobo, and we've we have some of their offspring. So we have Uno, which is Bobo's son. So he's quite an aggressive young rooster. I'm not sure how much longer he is for this world. And then we have the three new chickens. I may have referred to these guys recently. So the three new other, so Charlotte's other chickens uh, are, uh, let me get this right. We have Bluey and we have, yes, Bluey named for the, the, the very popular Australian cartoon dog. Um, we were early adapters of Bluey before we came back from Australia. We we're big fans. I've just gone blank on the other chicken's name. One of them is called Bob Ross. I know that much. And then there's another one. Or is it just the three of them? Maybe no, maybe it's just the three of them. That's it. So Uno, Bluey and Bob Ross. And then Charlotte and Bobo are the mothers. Yeah, five in total. Anyway, there you go. So it's all happening here on the uh, the Clear Out Menagerie. Um, okay, quite a bit to, to get through today. And a little bit of... Uh, a potpourri of different um, constituent parts. Um, a, couple, a couple of movies I want to talk about. Not Christmas ones. This is not a Christmas episode. Um, I hinted it might be, but it won't be. I'm not sure. I just haven't, yeah, I haven't uh, come up with sufficient themes or ideas or uh, inspiration for a Christmas episode just yet. I will. I still plan to do the normal Christmas special, which will consist of a new story and some songs, some music of the season, perhaps another interview with my daughter. That was quite popular last year. Um, yeah, she's definitely having a moment. She's having a moment. She's having one of those Santa Claus isn't real moments. And it's driving her demented. She hates the prospect of him not being real. And we're doing what we can to allay her fears. But that's a, well, I guess it may have not a key moment for everyone. Not everyone's uh, into Christmas and Santa Claus, but like a lot of kids are in the world. And that is definitely, that is definitely a point of departure as a young person when you're like, eh, that guy they told us about who uh, informed the season with such extraordinary magic. Is actually a load of crap. <laughs> it's actually not real at all. Oh God! And I've been speaking sort of slightly ambiguously and abstractly to my daughter, going, "Listen, there are different paths you can go down in life, and one of those paths you believe in magic, and you believe in something special in the world." And that keeps a little bit of hope alive and it keeps a little bit of idealism alive and it keeps the light alive. And I said, I'm nearly 50 and I believe in it. <laughs> and then there's the other path where you just go, nah, there's nothing, there's nothing to look forward to. <laughs> it's all, so it's a real, I'm giving her a real kind of zero sum game. It's a total binary. Everything is magical and wonderful and amazing or everything is in the crapper. Um, so anyway, Anyway, I'm 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 plotting and scheming because uh, 
yeah, she's got her super sleuth hat on to try and prove herself. She wants to prove herself wrong. Her instinct is that he's not real. And she wants him very much to be real. And that is her dilemma. And it is distressing her no end. But uh, what can you do? What can you do? We'll see. We'll see. I'll um, I'll report back. I will report back. Uh, and hopefully she doesn't listen to this episode. She won't. She has no interest. She has no interest whatsoever. Um, anyway. So... A couple of movie reviews and a couple of obituaries. That's right. A couple of significant figures passed away this week. And the the level of significance or importance or resonance um, you felt on, upon hearing the news of these deaths uh, will be largely subjective. And yeah, interesting though, I think. Interesting to talk about. Um, and the only other thing I wanted to talk about, in fact, you know what, I'm just going to start with this and maybe, maybe that will be a thread that will weave through the rest of the, the, the episode. Um, I had a friend reach out to me, a regular listener from Melbourne, uh, my good friend, Joe, uh, a woman I worked with in, uh, when I was teaching in Melbourne, we spent a, a short time working together, um, gosh about 10 years ago now and she used to tease me because (laughs) I was at down the other end of the corridor but she you know she'd be able she would be able to hear my lesson in great detail such was the volume of my voice and she used to give me a bit of friendly grief about that um in any case Joe reached out to me uh, and she was responding to some of my kind of commentary slash reaction assessment of the the current conflict in in Gaza and she felt I had been a little bit one-sided in my analysis and and, and Joe comes from a, a Jewish background and you know is, is, is kind of struggling with I suppose what can be seen as a very anti well certainly an anti-Israel position um, from different parts of the world and among her own kind of group of pals um, and just sort of an absence, what she feels is a bit of an absence of, of nuance and maybe a hesitancy to condemn um, the Hamas attacks on October the 7th. And certainly I'd have to put my hand up and go, I did focus in the couple of episodes I spoke about the conflict, I did focus very much on Israel's role and Israel as uh, an instrument of imperialism and, uh, and I feel I I feel I brought a certain amount of nuance to that analysis or that, you know, my own thoughts on that. But without even having listened back, I think I can say pretty safely that I didn't particularly I'm not sure how condemnatory I was of the Hamas attacks on October the seventh. And that was that was um that was a, a, a an omission uh, and a failing on my part. Because you only have to spend a moment or two taking in what happened on that day and listen to certain accounts or stories or reports of the horrific violence that those members of Hamas uh, carried out in kibbutzes and around that part of southern Israel um, to just be disgusted. Um, And ultimately... 
so, you know, so let me just say unequivocally, I condemn that. Absolutely. I condemn it. Absolutely. Uh, there's no part of me that's like, ah, yeah, well, but. Um, what I realized as I was reflecting on this, and, I, and I'd been thinking of, of a very much a related matter even before Joe had reached out to me because I was just, you know, looking at the 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 sort of escalating death toll in Gaza and I just I just found myself going it's it's just this form of madness um from either side when you've got if you know if it's if if it's not a misrepresentation to describe members of Hamas as jihadists um and to equate them then with the the hyper aggression of the Israeli military response for me there's like there is an equivalency there because there is such an extraordinary disregard for human life an astonishing disregard for human life and the you know from either side to view their enemy um and without hesitation to go it's okay for us to wipe you out um, whether that's Hamas viewing Israelis or, or, or Jews uh, in Israel um, or whether it's members of the Netanyahu regime viewing Palestine, um, Gaza in the same way and going, yeah, there, there's nothing to stop us doing this. There's no moral compunction that says we shouldn't do this. Um, and I, I just, there, there's no value in that for me. And it's like, I suppose fundamentally it's a pacifist position. It's a non-violent position. Um, and, you know, I'd have strong, I'd have strong feelings about, I have strong feelings about imperialism. I have strong feelings about uh, British imperialism, American imperialism, and, you know, Israel as a, uh, as a, as a sort of a tool of American imperialism, arguably. Um, but I, you know, I, I, as I as I spoke about previously, I also am always interested in you know starting points. Um, I spoke a few episodes episodes ago about the idea of the originating wound, and you know ultimately, you know my my instincts as a as a person um, from a very young age. It's classic middle child. I'm a real sort of bridge builder. <laughs> I'm interested in in peace. I'm interested in come on. Can we not just sort this out? Is there not a way to ameliorate this situation? Can we not take the higher ground and be, uh, you know, be better people and think of, you know, long-term future healing rather than focus on long-term past hatred or past resentment or past victimhood or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and I think it's a, you know, ultimately that's the, that's the, the sign of sort of maturation when you can really live your sense of forgiveness. Um, and you know, obviously there's no, there's no sense, there's no sign of that at the moment. Um, you know, in, in, in Gaza, Palestine, Israel, in that conflict, but you'd wonder how long it's going to take before in the future you'll have veterans of these conflicts who can sit down together and break bread 
and go that was that was a crazy time you know that was you know we, we really we really hurt each other um and i'm not sure i have i mean i just i don't have a sufficient grasp of geopolitics i don't have a sufficient grasp of the nuances of the political situation in that region uh, although i certainly was helped by sam harris had a very good episode uh, recently where he interviewed um an israeli academic whose name i have not recorded yuval harry something yuval noah harry oh i apologize um but that was really interesting because the the academic in question was able to kind of shed a lot more light on and, and nuance on the situation and he made it very clear that you know Netanyahu uh, is very hawkish um, and sort of would have probably on, on, on a level delighted in the opportunity presented to him to retaliate um, as a response to the, the you know the, the, the how bad that October 7th attack was and he said that Netanyahu deliberately has courted this relationship with Hamas because he knows that Hamas will never compromise and that plays into Netanyahu's vision um, and sort of strong arm tendencies. So it absolutely suited him. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, if you've got a conflict where the combatants on both sides see no value in the lives of their enemies, it's um, it can only really go one way. And that way is the the loss of compassion, the death of compassion, the death of care for your your fellow your fellow human, uh, your fellow traveller, and it does. What I what I found myself thinking about in the broader sort of existential consideration is, you know, what value does any human life have? And that may seem a grossly insensitive question to to ponder when people are dying in such huge numbers in, in Gaza at the moment, when people in Israel are mourning the death of those who died in the, the this October seventh attacks, when there are people who've been, you know, dying for the last couple of years in the Ukraine Russian conflict. Um but it's I think it's a valid question um, and you know how much of our sense of the value of a human life is, is you know is caught up in in what in 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 constructed ideas around you know morality um ideas around the sort of supremacy of the human animal very wary of that one um i'm not sure i mean and maybe maybe the question i'm not sure if the question is another one connected to you know where our humanity is located um or (laughs) simply why are we so special um because we don't generally afford the same value or sanctity of life to other animals um you know in the world and you know my life isn't worth more than anybody else's life 
my daughter's life isn't worth more than anybody else's life. I mean, that's always my instinctive position um, is that no one's life is worth less than ours, less than mine, less than my daughter's, less than my wife's. And the second you start thinking the opposite of that, um, there is, there's a, there, there's a loss somewhere. There's a cost, um, I think, to your humanity. If your idea of humanity is connected to a sense of broader, broader sort of care or consideration for the other people that we share this planet with. Um, and that might be a very romantic idea. It might be absolutely unrealistic. Um, but, and, yeah, and don't get me wrong, I mean, obviously, I would, <laughs> you know, I'd choose my daughter over anybody else. But it, that, that doesn't mean her life is worth more. It's worth more to me because of my relationship to her. Um, and that then tells me that relationships are important and building and maintaining good relationships, loving relationships that increase your sense of care uh, for others and increase your sense of being cared for by others. That is, that's a human commodity that, I'm, that I care about. Not everybody does and not everybody has to. But, you know, the question is, can we make, you know, how, how, how can that be encouraged? And I was going to say, how can that be encouraged in, you know, the West Bank, in Gaza, in Israel? How can that be encouraged in Ukraine, Russia, any areas of conflict? How can that be encouraged in, you know, Northern Ireland, historically? Um, you know, relations between Northern Irish uni- unionists and Republicans, nationalists. Catholic communities, Protestant communities, loyalist communities. Um, I did see an interesting headline in that area, which I'll I'll, I'll comment on in a second. But um, the violence has to stop. The guns have to be put down. Um, And there has to be a determination to find a peaceful way forward, a non-violent way forward. And maybe it'll take an atrocity like October 7th and maybe it'll take an an atrocity and atrocity slash potential genocide um, that's been playing out since October 7th in in Gaza. Maybe it'll take these horrible events to persuade those who yearn for peace to become more determined, more willful, more resolved to achieve that for their, you know, the, the you know the people of their respective uh, lands and cultures and loyalties. Um, I don't know, but it's a, yeah, it's it's tricky, and you know, all of this is 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 in a way just trying to um, offer a an apology to my friend Joe for my oversight and to further sort of expand on my thoughts. And hopefully that's um, of interest to anyone else who's listening. Um, I did notice today, maybe like yesterday, I saw something in the paper. There was um, a, an article, I think, in the Irish Times saying that if Ireland unifies, 
as in if Northern Ireland, the border is dissolved and the six counties of Northern Ireland become part of the the, the nation of Ireland. Um, in the north, that will mean for citizens of Northern Ireland a personal financial loss of approximately three and a half thousand, I think was it sterling, no, I don't know if that was sterling or euros, but three and a half thousand a year. And a large percentage of people in Northern Ireland were, it's not worth it. You know, unification isn't worth three and a half grand each. Um, Kind of interesting, no? I, I think I, I think it's interesting that if that's the obstacle to unification, if that's the obstacle to a whole island, um, Ireland, uh, that's that's not particularly ideological, is it? Um, that's not. I'll never, you know, I'll never open a border to you know Republicans from the south of Ireland from the Republic. Um, I'll never let go of this enmity and hatred I feel for the Irish you know Irish culture and Irish republicanism and Irish nationalism when it comes down to a few quid um it feels like that's uh that's progress um and I'd be thinking take the three and a half grand let's make this a whole island again I would very much welcome that um but I guess it's not going to cost me three and a half grand. I mean, yeah, anyway. Okay, so look, they were my thoughts, and I'll move on now, and maybe the connective thread here is the value of human life. Okay? Maybe that's the connective tissue um, in the episode today, like the value of human life. And why not I just jump straight to the the obituaries I referred to earlier. So um, two figures died this week, two men. One was the Irishman Shane McGowan, former lead singer of the Pogues, uh, a man who'd been dogged with health issues and substance abuse related health issues i would say from um, a very hedonistic life he died at the age of 65 last week and there's been a tremendous outpouring of of of, of grief of of love admiration of memories of salutations of um yeah admiration for his skills as a, a songwriter um and for me, I was I was never like a, I was never a huge fan of his band, The Pogues, which were fundamentally a, a collective of um, sort of second generation Irish people um, who came up in the sort of the punk aesthetic of the late seventies, early eighties, and they found this sort of you know meld of. Um, traditional Irish music with punk attitude um, in, and then the sort of probably the distinguishing characteristic of their songs was the brilliance of McGowan's songwriting um, and his kind of 
completely uncaring frontman punk attitude where he was just doing his own thing and if you didn't like it you know you knew where you could go the the kind of the pogues musical aesthetic wasn't one that you know ever particularly resonated with me although i did have one of their albums uh, rum sodomy and the lash and um from that album funnily enough it was a couple of covers that that i always liked from that album um a man you don't meet every day a traditional irish one and then the great um eric bogle composition his anti-war song and the band played waltzing matilda and he used to love shane mcgowan's vocal on that song um now his you know there were other songs um probably rainy night in soho um and uh the other one I've just gone blank on was it about brown eyes have I got that wrong um, again I was not a fan I wasn't like a super fan I always thought that guy's a great songwriter um, but there was you know the, the, the lifestyle and the the kind of I suppose the way his drunkenness and his relationship to drugs and alcohol the way that was often um, you know valorized or, or celebrated or romanticized I have no time for that. I don't care for it. I mean, it's it's a very Irish tendency. It's a very, you know, that, that, that runs deep in Irish culture. And to voice an opinion that runs counter to that is, uh, it's not that popular. Um, and probably feels a bit mean-spirited uh, on, on, on a level. But um, that's how I feel. I kind of go, eh. You know, maybe there's a time and a place where you can kind of be more generous in your attitude to that when people are, you know, when people are younger and don't know any better or have less to lose. Um, but I just think it's very boring. I think it's a very one-note um, appreciation. And I think it's a little bit misplaced and, and wrong-headed and sort of, uh, not sort of, but really undercuts and diminishes the seriousness of addiction and the seriousness of alcoholism and completely glosses over the horrendous damage, um, the horrendous cost of addiction and alcoholism. Um, But the way drink and drinking continues to be fetishized in Irish culture is... um, Ah, like it's it, it's kind of an indictment uh, of, a, of a certain willful immaturity. And I say that, I say that knowing that for the 10 years I spent in Australia, and Australia, I found Australians very, very much able to, you know, keep up with the Irish in terms of drinking. But, you know, saying that there was an ask, there's an aspect to that culture. There's an aspect to the Irish ability to, to party and to have a to have a laugh and to let go of the daily crap and the stress and really just cut loose I, I missed that and I do value that now that that doesn't that's not there's not a direct equivalency with drinking and alcoholism there but being able to just go ah yeah let's just really you know drop the other shoe and go for it um you know I drink occasionally myself. I drink a little regularly. 
and then occasionally drink a bit more but i have to be in very particular company to really relax and 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 you know get myself drunk it doesn't happen very often at all um and that of course is you know that's connected to my own desire to maintain control and it's my nose and or my my radar for potential conflict or tension with those I'm you know in whose company I find myself and just not wanting to to present the opportunity um and that's fine I'm very comfortable with that doesn't bother me in the slightest um and you know it comes it, it can come at, at a cost there are some um accomplished drinkers in my family um that's it that's a nice euphemism isn't it <laughs> but it does it comes at a cost but i um i acknowledge i acknowledge the the value of making the decisions i've made and i acknowledge the cost um and that you know that that's something i live with um and it's something i may i may regret you know in 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 the future as I, as i get older but um it's been the pattern for a long time now and um it's i feel it on the balance on on balance it has served me um more often it has served me well than not um but shane mcgowan i f- oh, i never ever doubted for a second his authenticity I never felt he was putting on an act or putting on a show. I never felt he was trading in any sort of faux Irishness. I mean, he was born in uh, Tipperary, rural Tipperary, and moved to England as a as a kid. Um, and he obviously felt a very strong connection to Irish music and Irish storytelling in song, is how I would put it, from a very young age. And I think his songs reflect that. Um, and I, I think, you know, anything he's written stands up because I think he really was a very gifted storyteller and songwriter. Um, and the somewhat maligned fairy tale of New York is one of my favourite songs, full stop, never mind one of my favourite songs of his. And it's played to death over here every Christmas and maybe in other parts of the world as well and in recent times it's found itself in the crosshairs of woke politics and the culture wars because of its use of the derogatory homophobic epitaph um, uh, faggot because that's the word used by one of the two characters in in the song. The song was originally sung by McGowan and Kirsty McCall, the late Kirsty McCall, and it's a duet by two sort of revelers slash drunks um, in New York uh, on Christmas Eve, and it's one of the great great um, migrant songs. And, of course, it's a very particular uh, expression of the Irish emigrant experience and being away from home at Christmas. And any Irish person who's been away from home at Christmas, and I have I did 10, 10 of those Christmases away from home and a few more in England back in the day, um, it is. It, 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 there's a very particular uh, poignancy and there's a very particular sentimentality 
that can be overpowering um, and a yearning for for the sort of embrace of home, the yearning to be immersed in in the kind of the milieu, um, the, the, the you know the, the comfort, the sounds, the smells, the music, the crack. Um, and again, for non-Irish listeners, that's C-R-A-I-C. Uh, crack being an Irish word for, for fun, for merriment, for, um, you know, kind of a, a, a sort of a, a combined idea of fun, merriment, mischief, jollity, um, lively spirits. All of that is, you know, connoted by that one word, not to be confused with the... Um, the a-class drug um so yeah it's um and fairy tale of new york i just think is it's a it's a beautiful song that just it, it just walks that line of of sentimentality um you know sentimentality nostalgia culture um loss grief uh and romance um and it happens to be told by a guy who finds himself in a, a drunk tank in, in New York, but um, is out and about to have a, a kind of a drunken row with his girlfriend. Um, and it's, it's she who, who uses the, the word faggot to denigrate him. Um, and just on that particular issue or controversy, I I just feel, and I know I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said before by anybody else, I just feel it's contextual, it's in the word of a character, it's not expressing a homophobic view um, by, by Shane McGowan. Again, it just feels authentic to the character, you place it in the context of the character and it makes sense. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that if you are a gay person and you hear that song, it makes you flinch or cringe or feel uh you know a traumatic recall when that word has come out of uh another person's mouth in a in a violent way in a homophobic way um i can't speak to that experience and i wouldn't want to dismiss that as a very authentic and very unpleasant experience i'd like to think where her you know we've moved quite far down the road from that kind of that kind of language um and i don't think fairy tale new york is you know is a significant um ongoing offense or or threat to gay people um and i just think if it's caught up in the the sort of the prevailing dynamic of the worst end of woke politics which is just this hypersensitivity and a sort of a compulsion to take offense at every possible opportunity um and then to wield that power like a flamethrower um through a you know a field of cereal um i i i just distrust i distrust that impulse i distrust it i think Please keep thinking, keep talking, bring the nuance, bring the examination, bring the balance. Um, so, yeah, anyway, Shane McGowan, uh, I think I think of him as a great Irish writer. And, um, 
you know, if there wasn't peace uh, in his lifetime and, you know, connected to, you know, that relationship he had with substances and whatnot. Um, if there is some other place for him to be now, I hope he is at peace and doing what he loves uh, without the cost that uh, the human body can can exact. Can you hear that? Can you hear that crow in the background? That crow, that rooster? How can you not? Oh man, these chickens are wrecking my head today. <laughs> anyway, um, so from Shane McGowan um, to a man whose singing voice uh, I know nothing about, nor his songwriting abilities, um, but a man who was known for many other things that uh, weren't so frivolous. Henry Kissinger died this week at the age of 100. And I knew very little about Henry Kissinger, to be honest. I'm not I'm not a great student of history. Um, I'm, I'm generally interested in history and maybe more so as I age. But Henry Kissinger to me was always this sort of, I always found him like a shady presence in mid 20th century politics. Um, I knew he was a diplomat. Um, but he was, you know, he was to me this figure that was somehow very close to the highest levels of power in the United States, um, perhaps mostly associated with Richard Nixon. Um, and it was a Gerald Ford who came after Nixon. Um, but what I, what I've, what I've learned, you know, in, in the last, in the last week since his passing, um, I've kind of come, come across more details in his obituaries and more of the, the sort of the more explicit retellings of how significant a player he was in the architecture of American foreign policy in the sort of post-World War um, international balance. Um, and for many, he is regarded as a war criminal for the indiscriminate bombings that he sanctioned in, in Vietnam and in particular in Cambodia. And it made me think of that, uh, maybe it's a bit pithy, but that line, um, you know, if you kill one person, you're a murderer. Um, if you kill a million, you're a Nobel Peace Laureate. Um, there's a variation of that, isn't there? If you kill a million, you're a, a world leader. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's probably, that's, that's probably, it's a very cynical thing to say. But, Kissinger, uh, the, 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 the quote that I've heard repeated a few times in the last week is his chillingly brutal and succinct line that he sort of, w w with which he captured his military response or his military strategy regarding Cambodia. And basically it was everything that flies on everything that moves. And if you just think about the implications of that for a second, when America obviously had huge military power, huge military capability, um, and the idea of just sending planes over Cambodia to, yeah, indiscriminately bomb to pieces the you know the people and land of Cambodia 
And I think that is probably the thing that most people think of. And of course, there are people who go, you know, he was only doing what was necessary. Um, I find myself wondering about this idea that Kissinger was a German, um, a German who left Germany at the age of 15 and came to the States without a word of English. And you know, found himself, you know, in the US military and he taught himself English and suddenly was a very useful strategic figure at a time when the Americans needed German speakers and in this kind of post-World War era uh, when they had a lot of power um, and had a lot of decision-making power in the sort of um, restructuring of post-war Germany and Kissinger, that seemed to be the key entry to uh, the kind of spheres of influence in American political and military life. But what I found myself thinking about was, um, you know, he was he was Jewish, he was German, and perhaps American figures of power, presidents and other senior figures in U.S. political administration or military administration, Perhaps they felt if we can get this German Jew who who apparently had this Kissinger had this knack of just reducing, um, you know, reducing kind of geopolitical situations to ultra simplified, um, you know, binaries, you know, do this and this will happen, do that and that will happen. That's the better choice. That's what you should do. Boom. And with that strategy came this extraordinary uh, extraordinary and extraordinarily sort of aggressive implementation of American foreign policy in in countries like Vietnam and Cambodia later in in Chile in the kind of the the Allende um, regime being overthrown and a military coup being put in place which led to the rise of Pinochet um, that's a movie I haven't seen yet and very much want to. Uh, El Conde, the Pablo Loran movie that's on Netflix. Um, more on that uh, when I get to that in the future. But um, what I found myself thinking was, yeah, that these American figures would have gone, well, if this German Jew is saying it's okay for us to do this, um, then it must be okay for us to do this. Like we have the kind of the say-so from a member of the, you know, the oppressed, the, a member of the, you know, the, the victims of, you know, the Holocaust. And he's got a sort of a, a moral um, kind of carte blanche, so to speak. I'm, and, you know, and that's just my speculation. Like, I wonder if that was, if that was an American, uh, you know, a non-Jewish American giving the green light for those things. Would it have had the same um, reception is my question just um, yeah just a question I just found myself considering that Um, so yeah and look that's about all I have to say again I don't know that much about him Um, my I mean you heard me say it earlier you heard me say it in previous episodes my kind of fundamental anti-imperialist position would mean I would be on that side that would view Kissinger as as a war criminal, 
and not somebody deserving of um, a peace prize. In fact, was he was he co-nominated? Was somebody else, or co, you know, co? Was there somebody else who was also awarded the peace prize and refused to accept it because Kissinger was being given it too? Um, I think you know the peace prize has history in that area. I mean, again, maybe in the future, if there's someone who brokers peace in the Middle East, and that might be a former combatant or whatever, maybe that person will be deserving, will be deserving of a peace prize. Um. Yeah, so Kissinger, McGowan, and I did say maybe the connective tissue is the value of human life. And if Kissinger, in a position of great influence, if not outright power in in Washington, if he was very much removed from the 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 impact of his advice of his strategy of his influence and didn't have to be on the ground in Cambodia when a bomb was falling from an American plane. Maybe that led him to be very, um, you know, callous, disassociated, unaware, unfeeling and devoid of compassion for the the victims of, of those bombings. Um, and really unable to truly engage with the, the the value of those lives and the you know the death toll um I, you know definitely the death toll is in the hundreds of thousands if not if not millions so from there real history real people let's go to the world of the movies to to wrap up this episode and i'll jump to what i think might be one of the most unlikely comedies um, and one of the best but most unlikely comedies of the year and that is David Fincher's The Killer which was released uh, on Netflix a couple of weeks ago did it get a cinema release as well I think it did I've watched it about three times I found myself unable not to watch it again almost immediately after I first watched it and there is just something so darkly, grimly funny about the film, uh, which is basically the story of Michael Fassbender's assassin who blows a hit and suffers some very serious consequences as a result and then goes on a revenge mission to, to redress the balance and it's an incredibly sort of dry and internal um and of course physically he's a very physical actor michael fast but fastbender internal performance by by fastbender with um an ever present basically an ever present monologue his his voiceover the narration of the movie and there are well there's one great again depending on your appetite for such things there's a great fight sequence about midway through the movie um there are at least three other executions deaths four i'm sorry at his hands um and it just 
moves really well. It's really clean storytelling. It looks really good. But there is this sort of wry acerbic humour that runs throughout. Um, And there's two things. There's one, it's the characters. It's Michael Fassbender's own point of view and his own sort of sarcastic humour um and his own sort of superior aloofness um which has a real current of humor running through it because there's a there's a humor in the 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 disdain of the of the superior uh, <laughs> even you know even if the, the their their sense of superiority is only in their own head but the kind of the the that combination of disdain and contempt um and you know a witty or pithy put down i think can really land in the right place and he has one or two of those moments so that's one of the things that's funny now if you haven't seen it and you don't want the movie spoiled um you know stop listening and come back in a minute or two the other thing that makes it very funny is that throughout the movie he has this sort of like Zen koan, like a, a Zen mantra where he's laying out this is how you, you know, this is the code of the assassin. This is the code that you live by. This is the code by which you remain focused and removed from human emotion and become totally effective. Um, and it's a very sort of martial art mentality that he's alluding to. Um, but the humor comes in in that he, he's, he is clearly at a moment in his career where he has, he has lost faith in this mantra and is breaking all his own rules. So on first watch, you think he's laying out the mantra. This is, this is, the, this is the samurai this is the the disciplined um the disciplined soldier the disciplined instrument the machine and this is you know this is the rhythm um the mantra is the rhythm of of death and then you watch it again um having thought that the mantra was for our benefit being invited into his head but actually when i watch it again i was thinking no the mantra is for himself he's trying to convince himself that this, he's, you know, he's repeating the mantra so much because he no longer feels it, because he's no longer doing it. And, you know, basically that is uh, encapsulated by his failure to, to successfully complete his, his hit at the start of the movie. And that just sets the whole thing in motion. So it's this wonderful sort of existential journey and it's not done with him having a wig out he never has a moment of why am i still doing this or why do i kill people for a living he never has those moments but it's all through his action it's all through his choices it's all through this path he can't take himself off which breaks one of his rules um but it's a very tidy movie with 
individuated sequences, scenes which take place in different locations and it all ends in a hilarious showdown with the person for whom he was meant to be doing the hit in the first place um, played brilliantly and hilariously by Arliss Howard as a sort of um, you know aged uh, billionaire boy hipster and um, even that is just this great great you know comic note um, at the very end of the movie but uh, yeah just Fincher Fincher has that he has that humour in his movies it's, it, it is dark um, you know it's dark it's noirish um, he is a master craftsman he is an auteur and uh, it's I just found it a really really entertaining movie and probably you know on some you know the movie that it made me think of was probably um melville's le, le samurai the samurai with alain delon which i think is, is that 60s or 70s and alain delon is the, the the french hitman uh hitman all you know suave and sophisticated but again you're you're going on the journey following the guy and you know in in his case you know very suave very slick um but it's all sort of you know the noirish aspect of le samurai is you know it it just feels this isn't going to end well um and sorry that's another note that's another comic note of the the fincher movie um you know fassbender is 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 the opposite of the suave super cool uh assassin uh from an aesthetic point of view because in his own words, he dresses like a German tourist because they're the least conspicuous people around. And yeah, nothing, there's nothing cool about him. Um, and that's another humorous uh, aspect of the, of, the, of the whole experience. So um, I'd recommend that highly, really well worth checking out. Um, Fassbender continues to be a very interesting actor to watch. There's just this coldness to him and yet there is an inner machine uh and one of the cogs of those of that machine is definitely humor it's definitely comedy it's in the mix it's a glint in the eye there's something he has an ability to sort of undercut himself in a very subtle way uh and he's he's just a very very nice actor to watch um, and a brilliant, as I say, a brilliant physical actor as well. So um, if you like Fastbender and want to spend time with him, you could do much, much worse. Um, and again, some nice, some you know, some great uh, supporting actors in the movie. Um, is it Charles? I was going to say Charles Parnell. Is that his name? Um, and Tilda Swinton, again, another actor who is always interesting. She never puts in a turn that you don't go, "What's going on here?" Which brings me to the next movie I want to talk about. Um, I won't spend too long on this one. This is another Netflix movie released around the same time, maybe a week or or so earlier. It's called Reptile by Grant Singer. And Reptile is really simply a cop drama, cop thriller, you know, detective thriller. And, you know, speaking of interesting actors, you think like the rash of... 
you know, the, the, you know, the actors who've been populating the big action movies and superhero movies um, and blockbuster movies of the last 10, 15 years. Um, maybe people like the, the, the three Chris's, the Chris, Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth and Chris Pine, maybe the likes of Ryan Gosling. Um, I mean, they're all, they all have qualities as performers. They're all kind of good looking men. They're all kind of quite charming. Um, but on another level, not that interesting, maybe. And maybe that's the material. Maybe that's the actors. I mean, Gosling of that group is probably in a different category. Um, but it's funny watching Reptile, which has as as the central character uh, an amazing performance by Benicio del Toro. And I tell you what, Benicio del Toro is in inimitable. He will not be copied, um, and he has just such natural weight, gravitas. Um, internal stuff. He's such. He's just such a great presence on the screen, and it's been a while since I've kind of seen him in something that serves him so well. And let me say right from the off, Reptile is is fine. <laughs> it's not like an amazing movie, but I really, really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it, and in a way, it's like. Uh, it's like another version of of Copland, um, the uh, you know the movie Copland by um, you know it was James Mangold wasn't it and Stallone and Ray Liotta and Harvey Keitel and De Niro, Peter Berg, um, you know so many great actors in that movie. You know Edie Falco, um, who am I thinking of? Kathy Moriarty was she in it as well? Was it Kathy Moriarty? Hmm, I got that one wrong. Anyway. You know, Copland was simply a movie about this, you know, suburb outside New York um, that was like a little fiefdom run by the, you know, New York City cops who just went there and that's where they kind of planned all their corrupt ventures and schemes. And Stallone was the kind of Palooka style local cop who had to kind of keep them in check. Uh, Very effective movie, I think. Anyway, this one, Reptile, you know, a cousin, a cousin of the same movie. Um, and Benicio del Toro is, you know, investigating a local, very brutal murder, and um, is you know the more he kind of uncovers it, the more he's getting a sense of resistance from the cops around him, um, and he's supported uh, really only by his uh, his wife, played. Very interestingly, I hadn't seen her in a long time, Alicia Silverstone of Clueless fame. Um, And yeah, she just has a really nice quality as his wife. I was like, who is that actress? She's really good. And I was like, oh my God, it's Alicia Silverstone. Um, There was just something really lived in and believable about a portrayal of this kind of cop wife, uh, the wife of a cop uh, whose uncle was a cop as well. Um, But yeah, a really really lovely performance by del toro just go on the journey he takes his time he's not giving loads away he's just he's just so in his body he's just so you know his own pace really just holds the camera holds the story holds every beat 
and he's just got he's just such an interesting actor to look at and observe that face those eyes um and yeah he's just got that physical presence and it's um it was a, it's a really i felt just a really nuanced performance by him which was nice shades of of different things and then this nice supporting cast uh with eric bogosian and uh dominic Lombard, lombardarzo is it oh my goodness you'll know who i'm talking about herc from the wire um um i think who else oh justin timberlake of course and michael pitt an actor maybe you know we'd like to see more of michael pitt who came to my notice mostly for um his role in the first one or two series seasons of boardwalk empire um yeah he's got a quirky little role in that so yeah reptile if you want a bit of cop drama thriller stuff um you could do a lot worse just go on the journey it's um i don't know how much of a mystery it is but um it's just it's it's vibes it's vibes and atmosphere and good acting and sometimes that's enough that's enough to carry a movie over the line and um i i think it very much was in this case so um check that out um yeah so what was i going to say the concluding idea the value of life um you know that was something you know in 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 the michael fassbender role in the killer again someone who kills people for a living um and gets paid big money for it um does it without hesitation um yeah i mean what i'm gonna sit here a middle-aged podcaster in wicklow (laughs) and and pontificate and moralize uh we should hesitate before we pull the trigger we should hesitate before we dispatch a human life so easily um but let me remind you the killer was fiction and i think very funny the life of henry kissinger was not what's happening in the middle east is not um yeah so make of that what you will um i'll be back next week i'll be back next week with something different i've no idea what stay well stay safe and uh, if you want to give me some love you can do so on social media i'm there in all the usual places under the the clear out um if you like what i do here don't hesitate to sign up to patreon.com forward slash the clear out where you can support me with your hard-earned dollars or euros or francs <laughs> there's no francs anymore are there's, there's francs in switzerland surely swiss francs in large denominations please okay take it easy i'll talk to you soon i hope you enjoyed this i had a good time myself even though the chickens were distracting me i'll be back soon all the best mind yourselves bye Inside.